times. Guaranteed Fruits FM. This week? I've got some uh, ambience and meditative ethereal music from a lot of different artists. Uh, we'll hear from Wobbly. We'll hear from Yellow Magic Orchestra. We'll hear from Jeff Mills. We'll hear from Dataside. Very exciting though, in the middle of the show, we're going to hear an extended excerpt of Joe Frank's piece, Red Sea. Uh, I've played some of his work on the show before, but this is longer than usual. If you like it, he's got a, well, he's not alive anymore, but his family has a website up. I think if you just search joefrank.com, that'll pop right up, uh, and you can access all sorts of radio shows hours and hours of his of his work which i think is interesting and i hope you do as well so as always you can join us at uh datafruits.fm slash chat well the show's live if you want to talk and listen to you over as always thanks for tuning in and hope you enjoy the show
There was a time when I was a televangelist. I had my own cable TV show, the choir, an orchestra, a soprano soloist. My sermons were a combination of scripture, religious dogma, and off-color stories and jokes based on my new and revised Bible, which juxtaposed both religious and secular material, both the sacred and the profane. Or I just sit back and relax and I wouldn't say anything. I just gaze off into the middle distance, lose track of the fact that I was on television and I'd doze off. Or I'd get up and make myself a sandwich. And there was nothing saccharine or cloying or smarmy or ingratiating about me. I was the first honest, though perhaps mentally deranged demagogue on television. So I would sell these new and revised Bibles that included both secular and religious material, and I'd conduct telethons to raise money for the small church that I'd founded. And eventually I accumulated enough money to buy my own cable TV station, and then I had my own unique program in which I was televised 24 hours a day. I was always on camera. There was not one private moment in my life. You'd see me wandering around my house, watering my lawn, putting up storm windows, weeding my garden, or rotating the tires on my car, vacuuming the interior, changing the oil and transmission fluid. Or sometimes you'd see me in my swimming pool, lying back on a rubber raft, a drink with a little paper umbrella floating in a styrofoam container beside me, usually Myers rum with Campari, and equal parts of bitters and quinine water. And my camera crew would follow me everywhere. Uh, once I drove to a local bar, and I, I remember that night I drank too much and was barely able to make it home after weaving from lane to lane up the highway. And then you could see me fumbling for my keys at the door of my house before suddenly urinating behind some bushes and then groping at a window attempting to get in until finally, frustrated, I passed out unconscious on the front lawn. And the camera crew also followed me into a brothel and the fact that I was not a very good lover with almost no control and was not very well endowed either and that I wasn't ashamed of this, that I in fact celebrated it, that I recognized that I was just an ordinary man was very liberating for many viewers. And people who had no faith began to watch my program because it seemed to mock a world in which youth, beauty, wealth, power, physical strength, sexual prowess, political clout were the most valued assets. The fact was, and it still is, that the vast majority of the people who live in this country exist in a world in which they feel alienated and I legitimized their existence by my simplicity and my subversive nature. And I made them feel as though they were the real people and that the media images were simply false representations. And so I tapped into a huge audience of Americans that were disaffected, who felt that they didn't really have a stake in this country, who were beset by a vague sense of anxiety, a disquietude that haunted them as though a waking nightmare.
Of course, there were many other people who thought the program was a complete put-on and that I was ridiculing my religious followers, while the people who had religion believed that I was consumed by the madness of God. And soon, people began turning away from the networks, away from Fox and NBC and CBS and ABC, because their programming was so predictable, so obvious, so formulaic. While with my show, you never knew what was going to come next. And so I was enormously successful. I made the covers of Time and Newsweek for my truly unique and refreshing approach to quasi-religious broadcasting. And sometimes I'd get in my car and take a long trip, and I had a communications van that followed me around and a camera that transmitted my image to the van behind me, which was uplinked to a satellite so that we could transmit a live picture of me driving my car and follow me anywhere. And in fact, on one occasion, I drove down to Key West, stopped at various motels along the way, drank a huge quantity of scotch, gambled heavily on a riverboat, picked up a few prostitutes. And also, I liked to fish, and so I got out of the car from time to time, and I just dropped a line off of a bridge, and so for a few hours, you'd see me standing there with a fishing pole. And all the time, crawling across the screen at the bottom, was the 800 number to call to buy my Bibles. So this new religion that I created became enormously popular because it was all-embracing. It accepted rather than denied. It encouraged rather than prescribed against. It revealed many roads as opposed to one road and respected what is human in us, our infinite variety. This religion I founded recognized those differences and it celebrated them. And it was a very freeing and exhilarating faith. And people flocked to it. In fact, so many people attempted to come to the services at the TV church that there just wasn't enough room for them all. And that's when I decided to open up other churches exactly like my own and sell the franchises. Churches with exactly the same dimensions, furnished with the same pews, with identical cushions and pulpits and candelabra and crucifixes and collection boxes and silver chalices and also provided were a scepter, an incense burner, a decanter for holy wine and water, a cruet for vinegar, another for oil. And the holy water was produced and bottled at a plant in Ohio and personally blessed by me. And there were also soaps and emollients and oils and perfumes and incenses and cassettes of my sermons. And of course, the new revised Bible, which were for sale to the public in the front of the church, in the church store. And there was also a mail order catalog with an 800 number. It was a McDonald's Burger King kind of operation. You could assemble an entire church in 18 hours. The churches were 28 by 56 feet and could hold about 150 people. They were prefabricated, modular. You'd simply bolt everything together. They had stained plexiglass windows with pictures of a lion lying down with a lamb, Jesus feeding the poor by multiplying a single fish and a single loaf of bread so that 10,000 fish sandwiches could be served, 
and pictures of the Sermon on the Mount and Lazarus raised from the dead and the Last Supper. And if McDonald's had the golden arches, what was going to be the symbol of my church? And I finally decided on a pair of candlesticks on either side of an open Bible and the phrase, light the way. And soon my churches were all over America and we had signs above them that said, 100 million Bibles sold. And uh, as we increased our sales, the digital number changed daily from 100 million to 110 million to 120 million and so on. And you could purchase a franchise for $160,000. And you could order your own clerical collar, your own robes, all the standardized vestments. But then, at the height of my success, I suddenly felt haunted and troubled. Something was not right. I didn't feel as though I was in control of my life. I felt as though my life was running me. I had dreams that I couldn't shake of falling, of drowning, of suffocating. And even though I had everything I wanted or thought I had everything I wanted, somehow I felt lonely, frightened. I experienced a sense of emptiness, of meaninglessness. I was in a state of despair. But on my TV show, I was completely honest about my spiritual crisis. I did not try to hide it. The fact that I was losing my faith, that I was experiencing this malaise, turned out to be a tremendous boon. If I was big before, I was even bigger now, because my audience were people just like me, who were struggling with their own faith as well. And so my spiritual crisis led to a profound groundswell of participation with calls and letters and even more money. Until one night, when the cameraman who was supposed to be monitoring me in bed fell asleep and I slipped out of bed on camera and then I walked out of the frame because I decided that the only way to get out of this horrible rut was to go back to my roots, sneak out of the compound without anybody's knowledge and get into the old car which I'd saved, in which I used to drive around the country selling my Bibles. But you see, I was so famous then that I had to disguise myself. And so I wore a wig and a false mustache with mutton chops and I wore thick glasses and platform shoes and contact lenses which changed the color of my eyes. And I also padded my clothes to make myself look 30 pounds heavier. And so I drove off in my old car, piled high with the Bibles like in the old days and I disappeared miraculously. Some of my most religious followers believed that I'd become cosmic and insubstantial, that I'd dropped my body and that I was no longer encumbered by fleshly matters and daily travails, but had risen above all that and like a true celestial being governed from everywhere at once. But what in reality was happening was that I was driving across the country anonymously, staying in motels, trying to come to grips with the despair that I was feeling. And then, finally, I was in the desert in the southwest, and I'd been driving at night, and now dawn was coming up, 
It was in the middle of the summer, very hot, and I had no water, and I was out there in the desert, hundreds of miles away from anything, utterly lost. And then my car ran out of gas, and the day was hellishly hot, and I staggered from the vehicle just in time to see it burst into flames, and the car was now burning, and I watched it as it continued to burn, but was not consumed. And this became a deeply religious experience. Somehow I felt as though I was present at a seminal moment in my life, a turning point in my existence. And for days I watched my automobile as it continued to burn. And the thirst I had felt was relieved. I no longer felt pangs of hunger. And my beard stopped growing. And finally, the fire went out and the car remained, and I got in, and the steering wheel was still a bit hot, and the upholstery was smoking, and so I had to get out again and wait a few more hours till the car cooled off. And that night, at about 3 a.m., when the car was comfortably warm, but not too hot to the touch, I turned the ignition, stepped on the accelerator, and miraculously, the car started and then I drove back to the compound, which had been surrounded by reporters and grief-stricken followers, to whom I once again became the shepherd.
far away You seem so far away When it was only yesterday That you were oh, so close to me So close that every sigh Was like the whisper of a lover's lullaby The way the ocean hugs the edges of the sky As close as we could be Star away And even though your hands Could touch me if they tried When love has died What more is there to say I only know You're so far away You're long ago So far away Love has died, what more is there to say? 